Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. I am the incorrigible Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who was dishonorably discharged from the Navy, Mr. Ryan Siebold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? going pretty well, man. It's going better than you when you got uh, kicked out the old Navy there, dude. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened? I know! <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I'm making the best of it. Uh, I'm here with you, so there's that. Doing pretty good. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Now, I heard that a large part of the reason that you had gotten kicked out is because oh, you become something of like a sort of crime syndicate leader. There was something about gambling and like, I didn't know exactly what it was. I never heard what you guys were like gambling on, but it sounded pretty severe. And, and I think it's probably time for you to just come out with it and, and let us know, dude, what, what was this whole gambling ring? Who fell overboard? That was the whole thing. We would leave, <laughs> <laughs> we would leave shore on the boat and it was always, who's going to be, uh, the guy that falls over. And uh, luckily it was never me. Uh, I, I got pretty good sea legs from that time I spent on that pirate ship that I got shot out of a cannon on too. But, uh, you know. <laughs> well, no, that's the whole reason that you got busted is because you were like fucking with shit and, and behind the scenes pulled the strings to make sure it was never you. And there was this whole sort of right. like Watergate thing where, you know, you were bugged and they had secret recordings of like all the shit you were doing. And like, I got to admit, <laughs> I, like I was, I was impressed. I'm I listened the to the tapes, disturbing content, no doubt, but I was impressed by my boy's ability to scheme. I am the Pete Rose of the Navy. This is what's coming out right now. <laughs> yes. I, uh, I had the whole thing rigged banana peels everywhere. Just waiting on, uh, on good old Stu to, to fall over or Ben or Bob, you know, I would find the guy and I would just, I would rig it all up like home alone. I was, <laughs> I was Kevin McAllister and I would have the whole thing trip wired and uh, booby trapped so that uh, to make sure that I would always win these bets, uh, not a popular uh, thing to do amongst service members. So yeah. Um, <laughs> and, they, and the people don't even know that like you would have been in serious trouble had you not donated all that money to the polio fundraiser that they run each and every year, much like in this week's film. Why don't you tell us what we got on tap? Today's film is <laughs> the last detail starring Jack Nicholson, Randy Quaid, uh, Otis Young and Carol Kane. This is from 1973 from director Hal Ashby. Uh, who I found out I didn't know nearly as much about uh, as I thought I did. So uh, Google's got this listed as when Sailor Larry Meadows, played by Randy Quaid, is sentenced to eight years in a New Hampshire prison, Navy lifers Billy Podusky, played by Jack Nicholson, and Mule Mulhall, played by Otis Young, are assigned to escort him there from Virginia. Along the way, they warm up to their prisoner, indulging him in small ways such as making excursions to a brothel and to his mother's house. 
As they get closer to their destination, their fondness for Larry makes it harder for them to execute their orders. Jason, what did you think about this movie? Well, Ryan, normally I would make you listen to a trailer right here first before I told you, but uh, I'm not going to subject our listeners to the trailer that is available for the last detail. Now, before we get into the movie proper, Ryan, I do just want to bring this up. Like, we've looked at a lot of films from the 70s and earlier over the course of the two seasons that we've been doing this show. I don't I think it was the 80s where movie trailers became something of an art form in and of themselves and sort of took a specific format that we we know them as today. Right. With the uh-huh. announcer and everything. There are so many films from the 70s and before where when we go to the trailer, it's just clips of the film. Sure. Like with no narrative set up at all. Like they just grabbed some random clips and threw them together. And, you know, they're not particularly well produced. And. Oftentimes, too, there'll be a lot of uh, visuals, right? Like text on stage, so or on screen, rather. So uh, the last detail trailer is mostly silent, and it's just clips from the film, so I didn't want to include that here today. Most of the time, it's a foreign film, but in this case, it just wasn't interesting. So I wonder if that's because there was no place to put them. So prior to prior to the 80s, you know, you you had three networks on television, and, you know, CBS, ABC and NBC, I would assume. And then you got uh, theatrical trailers where the text on the screen would be more impactful, you know, flying at you and like the Western or, you know, Lawrence of Arabia style format. Um, but b- before uh, cable took off in the 80s um, and before blockbuster video and VHS rental uh, took off to put trailers before video cassettes i i would assume that's when and you know the the birth of the blockbuster let's just be honest you had jaws and star wars kind of kicking that off and so blockbuster movies uh like in your indiana jones your goonies your back to the futures i think those are more easily digestible in a trailer versus you know uh, a, a really heady drama or something you know uh what are your thoughts on that do you think there's any rhyme or reason to that I mean, I do, but I also think that it was just something that probably wasn't really considered in that fashion, right? Like, it was it was something that wasn't really given much consideration until it sure. was. And then all of a sudden, I think probably once people found out how effective it was... Um, you know, then then it became like setting up the story. And then and then, of course, they overcorrected. Right. And then they started like putting in too much story and telling us too much about the film. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. you know, so there is a there is a difference to be split there. I think I really like the way that Spielberg, if he doesn't still approach it, I do remember when he released Minority Report. Uh, in that, you know, those 2000s gl- uh, glory days. I mean, Spielberg has, what, three decades that are glory days, right? But 2000s were strong for him. And he said how when he put together the Minority Report trailer, he made sure to only use content from the first act or the first, like, 20% of the film or something like that, right? Sure, like, he wouldn't sure. green light them using any footage from later. So that's, I think, really effective, um, you know, when you don't give away too much. But all that to say that, uh, yeah, I'm sure it was just one of those things where, to be completely honest, they did an analysis and found out, oh, when we do these trailers, uh, a lot more people show up when they know what the movie's about. And ergo, we make a crap ton more money. And so for a modest investment, of a modest additional investment of, you know, producing these trailers a certain way. And then, of course, paying this one dude. However, I, I mean, I think they paid that guy six figures to do 
the trailers, like through the eighties and nineties, you know, the, the guy, the movie trailer guy that we all yeah. know like, in, a, in a world, in right? A that world. Guy. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he was just making stupid money for like three minutes of narration. But yeah. anyways, to answer your question from, I don't know, seven minutes ago, I loved this movie, Ryan. I thought the last <laughs> detail was fan friggin' tastic. It's such a seventies movie. And I'm starting to realize as we see more and more films from the 70s, like how much I appreciate the filmmaking of that era. Same. You know, just the whole grit, even just down to the gritty film stock that everybody used and how seemingly every day was overcast regardless of what city you (laughs) shot in, right? Yeah, the colors were all very unsaturated, you know, a a lot of it is... Yeah, a lot of concrete gray, right? Yeah. Takes place in like these downtown urban settings and stuff. I just, I love that. And if you're going to shoot at night, you know, guess what? You're just not seeing shit. You know, there's no dynamic range to any of these cameras. <laughs> the blacks just, just imagine fall what's off going completely. on, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, I, I really enjoyed it. And let's go ahead and, and, and uh, get things kicked off here and start to look into exactly why. So, uh, Ryan, I'm going to need a good place for us to start. At the beginning. If you say so. So after a very brief opening credit sequence, we open on a wide the shot. Briefest. The briefest. Okay, let's just start there. <laughs> this is the quickest, <laughs> quickest title sequence. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. No, no, no. Please. By all means. But holy shit. They started with the drum roll that, by the way, I thought we were getting into some 20th Century Fox shit uh, with the jun dun jun dun And then it just went right into this little military thing. Uh, and then. Yeah, those are military snares. I guess we, you don't realize that until you hear actual military snares that sound exactly like the Fox opening. <laughs> Directed by Hal Ashby. Peace, we're out. Let's go. That's all. Also, uh, I don't know if, 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 uh, you know, you plan on getting into this later. I didn't really have anything, but I just thought it was super cool uh, that it was a Robert Town script who was famous for writing Chinatown. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. I just, uh, I just read that book. We talked about it a few episodes back about the whole making of that and just everything that. Uh, went on with adapting his script into what it would become with Polanski's film. And uh, I remember as it came up, like, oh, yeah, he was talking about how he was trying to shop that film around, but, like, nobody would take it because he was, like, dead set on leaving the profanity in there. And that yep. was a large part of why he had a hard yeah, time I read selling that. it. Good yeah, for so. him. I support the shit out of that. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's about sailors. So, you know, they should talk like sailors. And there's a yeah. reason the expression is curses like a sailor. Right. I heard the original title for this film was The Last Motherfucking Detail. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Sam they, Jackson pitched it at the time. <laughs> they did, Yeah, a 10-year-old Sam Jackson pitched this, and uh, I heard they did come to a compromise. So, you know, <laughs> we get what we get. So after a very brief opening credit sequence, we open on a wide shot of a small procession of Navy soldiers. As they march through the streets of a naval base in an undisciplined formation on, like we said before, an overcast day, a single soldier appears. He's separate from the rest and to the left of frame. Now he approaches the camera, which juxtaposes the direction that the other soldiers are marching in and crosses the street to the right as the camera pans to follow him into a nearby administrative building. Now, Ryan, very quickly, we see him sort of roaming the halls and he's asking for Badesky. Has anyone seen Badesky? Badesky. few rooms later, we see Badesky introduced to him. He is passed out in a chair wakes up very disheveled with a unlit cigar in his hand and very, looks around very quickly, finds a bottle of liquor 
and gargles with it to wake him up as this soldier is letting him know that the MAA would like to see him. And no, I have no idea what that's an acronym for, but I assume it's some sort of major. Uh, and <laughs> Bodiski's response is to go tell the MAA that he can go fuck himself. <laughs> and so the soldier then from there goes and finds this other guy, Mulhall. He's going to be our other soldier that we're going to be with for the entirety of this that are escorting Meadows. And he's played by Otis Young. Gives him the exact same story. You know, guys lets them know that the MAA wants to see him. He says, tell him he can go fuck himself. And he goes back to chopping vegetables or whatever it was he was doing. Now, both of them ultimately do show up to the MAA's office and uh, they are quickly tasked with a detail setting up the title of The Last Detail, though I don't expect it to be their last. And uh, they find out that they're supposed to transport this kid, this guy Meadows, played by a very young Randy Quaid, to a New Hampshire naval prison, where it's revealed that this guy is going to get eight years in prison for stealing $40. Now, it just so happens that the $40 that he stole was from a polio fundraiser that the wife of, you know, whoever runs the naval facilities or some hotshot, right? That's uh, way up there. It was like her favorite thing. And so that's really ultimately why he's going away. And it will, even, it will even be revealed later that he didn't even steal the money. It was attempted robbery that he's getting eight years for. So, Ryan, the way that this movie introduces the characters, the storytelling, the cinematography, just what this movie is, uh, what did you think about the overall style of storytelling and specifically what did you think about just your high level we'll go into each of them specifically but your high level response to these three characters that we spend so much time with so this is an era of jack nicholson that is just the damn best you know it's <laughs> yeah one flew over the cuckoo's nest or this film or chinatown as you previously mentioned um you know, even his short bit and easy writer. I mean, it's uh, I haven't seen five easy pieces in quite some time. We discussed that last episode. I, I get that uh, some of the lines mixed up of that one in, in the last detail. Um, they kind of sure. blend together for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, these are all very likable characters. Even crazy ass Randy Quaid is super lovable. You want to pinch. His oh, yeah, in for this sure. Film. And so I I had seen this film before, but it has been so long that I didn't even know what I was get really in store for. I thought it was more of a deep seated drama. And this ends up being more like an Ivan Reitman stripes, Bill Murray film. Like, uh, oh, yeah, very, very sure. strange. Um, I don't want to skip too far ahead, but, uh, you know, th it's kind of genreless or the, a, a dramedy maybe at best. Um, you know, well, it's even classified as a comedy. Like, yeah. uh, I don't know. I don't know. Where did you watch it? By the way, I watched it on YouTube. I watched it on Amazon prime. Oh, okay. By the way, when I say I watched it on YouTube guys, uh, it's not available like as a free file, the way that dead alive was earlier. Um, it turns out you can rent movies from YouTube. I had actually never what rented a world movies through YouTube, right? <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> uh, and I'll say, actually, not bad. Pleasant experience. UI, cool. much better than the old HBO Max. I could rewind error-free, which apparently oh, is just asking way too much of HBO Max. There will come a day when I'm going to request we have a bonus episode where you and I just yell into the microphone about HBO Max's UI. But, uh, <laughs> that's another The, the content is is amazing, but their UI is just the worst. Yeah, yeah. I'm just going to put this on pause while I uh, go grab a <laughs> water. And HBO's like, no the fuck you won't. <laughs> <laughs> 
you will restart this whole shit and watch it from, <laughs> from the get, or you will sit here and watch your movie. Yeah, it's a it's a finish your vegetables or you don't get any dessert uh, take on watching films. It's crazy. <laughs> what if HBO Max has like Marty Scorsese and Christopher Nolan advising them behind the right, scenes? Right. And they're like, punish anybody who pauses the film even for a moment. <laughs> Listen, you cocksucker. If they're sucker. not watching uninterrupted from beginning to end, fuck them. This is fucking cinema. Sit there and goddamn enjoy it. <laughs> Oh, Absolutely. Oh yeah, but yeah, to your point, dude, just the this this era of Jack Nicholson was something else, man. 100%. So, you know, to kind of expound high level like you said, a uh, two-parter uh two-part this, this played out as a buddy romp. This was this had more in common with to me personally in common with the uh Big Crosby Bob Hope on the road films uh, from days of yore that mm. are so well parodied by uh, Seth MacFarlane and family guy with Stewie and Brian. But uh, yeah, <laughs> this is uh, this is road to Rhode Island. This is road to New Hampshire, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, going to prison and, and uh, you know, just a fun romp and all the little adventures and hijinks they go on. Um, Definitely. You know, I've never seen any of those movies. I, I've seen them parodied time and time again. I've never actually seen you get the, the gist, right? I mean, it's yeah. kind of what they are. And this is kind of in suit with that. You know, uh, it's worth mentioning very quickly that Hal Ashby is coming off of his first major feature debut, Harold and Maude. So um, kind of a twisted comedy in that one. And then, you know, kind of goes a lot of that uh genre kind of bleeds over into this a little bit i think that the yeah. tone and everything before he settled into some of his more serious uh films moving forward yeah and you know what's funny is that i have actually i've only seen one hal ashby movie and it was this movie same as yourself like 15 years ago 20 years ago right like late high school early college um, and yeah, it was just because I was really into Jack Nicholson. Like, I think we all kind of go through a Jack Nicholson phase at some point. And I understand that he's, cause you, so you did some research on him and like, I understand the guy's a little bit of a, a little bit of a hippie. And I think that, you know, you kind of see a lot of that in his filmmaking style. Right. I think that. Um, you know, he's probably one of these filmmakers that, you know, is really just based on this film and his reputation, like, you know, really big on natural lighting and natural sound and, you know, doesn't want things to be overproduced and almost try to try to approach his filmmaking like a documentary sort of documentarian, so to speak. Like, does that vibe with what you know of him at all? Yeah. So, um, he's big on natural lighting. He's big on drugs, apparently. He was... <laughs> Uh, known as being not very reliable. Uh, this guy, a oh. um, couple things about Hal Ashby very quickly. He started as an editor um, and uh, won an Oscar for editing In the Heat of the Night that we've discussed really? on wow. several occasions back in 67. Um, and uh, so he kind of came out of that editing camp on of, of storytelling. And then also um, he was a former Mormon came out of Utah and his uh, he had a hell of a life, including his dad divorcing his mom and then committing suicide. Um, he was uh, personally married and divorced, I believe uh, before all before the age of 19 and wow. um, peaced out and uh, went to Hollywood and uh, yeah, started as an editor. Well, started as, you know, on the come up and then worked his way up to editing. And then, the, uh, you know, I think his first major, directing feature was Harold and Maude. Have you not seen Harold and Maude? I, I have not seen Harold and Maude, oh, wow. and I have not seen Being There. Okay, yeah, I haven't seen Being There uh, mm -hmm. either, but uh, with Peter Sellers. 
Um, but yeah, towards the end of his career, he was kind of known as being somewhat um, unreliable uh, due to drug use. And uh, and then I he died uh, in the 80s, I believe, from uh, cancer, if I'm not mistaken, in his liver. Something along those oh, lines. Wow. So, yeah, he never really got a chance to make a comeback. Uh, you know, you hear his name being thrown around a lot in, you know, how yeah, yeah. as an auteur, but he really didn't make that many films. So, you know, just kind yeah, of I guess his- he's just one of those people that kind of did a lot with a little, so to speak. Right. Like, I mean, it's, uh, you know, you, when you talk about auteur filmmakers, it seems like for whatever reason, like there's no middle ground. Either they've made 65 films or they've made four, right? Or six, yeah. right? You have like either you're Martin Scorsese or you're Michael, uh, not Michael Mann, uh, Terrence Malick. Right. right? <laughs> no in between. So I feel like Hal Ashby, again, is one of those guys who's on the Terrence Malick side where he's like, yeah, I did five, six films. But for whatever reason, like they hit hard and the, each of them landed and each of them went on. Because, I mean, that's still... I mean, those three films in and of themselves are very well regarded, you know, between The Last Detail being there and Harold and Maude. They're still talked about these days. Large cult films. Don't know if they were super successful when they came out, but they definitely had legs. Yeah, I mean, uh, he um, he made Shampoo, which I guess was his most commercial success oh, shit. back in 75 okay. with Warren Beatty. Um, yeah. And then it was shortly after that, I think, that he got uh, got into the co- cocaine and then got a little strung uh, out and um, gotcha. became, I guess he was supposed to direct One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest before Milos Forman replaced him. So uh, who knows? Wow. Yeah. I suppose we're better for it, dude, because that film is perfect and nothing needs to be changed about it. Right. So, right. So when the film uh, progresses from there, so, you know, we kind of get our, our initial setup where, you know, they're tasked with delivering Meadows to this prison and they actually have a week to do so, but they, they really only need a couple days, right? It's not that far away. So Badisky he basically says, hey, guys, why don't we slow play this? You know, we've got a per diem that we can tap into and we'll just sort of, you know, save the money. And and uh, he, he goes to Mohall and says, hey, we'll split it, you know, when this is over after we drop the kid off. And he agrees. And so, yeah, it basically kind of sets up this sort of like road buddy comedy, so to speak, is really kind of how I would categorize this. But with a dramatic element, you know, um, certainly. But uh, and then. One of the other things that's really interesting, too, is like you say, this Meadows character. So it's played by Randy Quaid, and this is before he went batshit crazy over the last 10 years. Uh, And he's very soft-spoken, polite, meek, you know, this wounded little puppy dog. And I think that that's what the film does best, is, is it characterizes all of these different characters. Well, mainly these three guys, right? And it develops each of them out in such a distinctly singular way, none more so than, of course, you know, Billy badass, right? That's what he, that's what everyone, everyone calls him. Uh, and he totally owns up to it and, and, you know, plays into that. Um, it's, it's really just, it's a character study. And so I really loved a lot of the small details and I don't know if this is, you know, in the script or was direction or both, but a lot of just the little things that they do to sort of illustrate who these people are. So, right. Right off the bat, you know, when they tell uh, Meadows that they're not going to be able to let him go to the bathroom anymore, he he has no idea that it's because, you know, he might run away. He actually says, like, oh, you guys don't have to worry. I'm not going to kill myself or anything. And, you know, they kind of, like, smirk it off. And it's just sort of, again, that that small detail tells you so much about who this, this Meadows guy is, right? And just the fragility of his psychology and all of that. And and the film would go on to do this in many different ways time and time again. And that's right. what most impressed me about it. Yeah, no, same. It was uh, 
so palatable, man. Everybody played that role so well. Um, I can't say enough about Otis Young. I want to know where the hell that yeah, guy was great. <laughs> yeah, he crushed his um, ball hall part. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to know Jack Nicholson and Randy Quaid right off the bat. But uh, uh, I was going to I was wondering how because, you know, playing against I mean, think about that, like what the the ask is as an actor to play against Jack Nicholson, um, you know, or yeah, in his Randy prime. Part. Yeah. I mean, he. Uh, one could argue that that he wasn't the Jack Nicholson by this point. You know, that was the 80s when he started wearing sunglasses. But uh, but still, I mean, he was crushing. And that's a hard act to follow when you're on screen. I mean, it also might elevate you as well. Maybe that's why he didn't go on to do many things past this um, of note. But uh, yeah, I-, I thought everybody did a great job. This this was a super easy watch. And uh, and you're right. It is a character study of sorts. However, I will say this is something I wasn't going to bring up till the end. But since you mentioned the character study portion of it, um, I'll ask you, Jason, did do you feel like there are character arcs to these characters? That was something I struggled to try to realize is that are these characters going through anything or are we just kind of watching a a straight line? Uh, you know, yeah. there isn't really a three act structure per se, either minus the setup at the military base, hijinks ensue back at military base, man goes to prison. So uh, that was my kind of thing was like, what is this? Like, this is kind sure. of a weird film where just stuff happens. <laughs> so, yeah. So I would say, well, I would say that there's a couple different things going on to answer your question. I think re- it requires two parts. I do think that it has a traditional sort of three act structure with a beginning, middle and end. I do agree though, that it lacks any sort of character arc with its protagonist or anyone else for that matter. Uh, you know, Badisky is the same guy at the end as he yeah. is at the beginning. Um, we now, We've certainly been exposed to different sides of him over the course of the film, but he hasn't changed as a person to your point. And that's a, that's 100% accurate. However, I think that what this is, and again, that's kind of, this is another thing that sort of gives me an idea of what sort of uh, filmmaker Hal Ashby is, is that I think this is sort of a slice of life film. I think this is one of the original, I think it's disguised by the fact that you have a huge Hollywood actor in Jack Nicholson and, you know, a a prolific filmmaker in Hal Ashby. But I think this is a indie slice of life, almost like uh, the way that I understand sort of a Harmony Korean film might be or, you know, any of these indie filmmakers. uh, Got it. You know, um, so. So, yeah. So I think that's what it's about. And I think that I think that, again, it's probably stemming from this sort of Charlie Kaufman-esque mentality that certain directors and writers can have, where it's like, you know, why can't a movie just be about flowers, right? <laughs> like, why yeah. do I have to write a film <laughs> where the guy, you know, goes through all these emotional changes and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not life. Life is like you get a shitty assignment and you do it and you're the same guy you were when you're fucking uh, is when you started, right? You just, you sure. did this job and hopefully you got a few bucks in your pocket and some things happen. Maybe you got a story out of it, you know, but it's definitely more of just a, an anecdote at the bar than it is some sort of transformational experience. And so I think that, you know, and pe- and certain people have a issue with that, right? We saw that explored in adaptation that I'm referencing. You know, where the the Robert McKee character is like, that's bullshit. Like, if nothing happened, why are you telling me this story? Okay, so nothing happened. Why make a movie out of it? Make a movie out of something that happened. But I think that, and I don't even know if this movie works with anybody but Jack Nicholson. But at the end of the day, the reason the film works is because it is a character study and we get the totality of this man, 
right? It's not, even though the arc is not there, the depth of character very much is. He's not a shallow character. He's not one note. By the time the movie is over, we're going to understand that this guy's a little bit more complicated. There's more underneath the surface. I think they do a great job of giving Jack Nicholson that last sort of scene at the end where he doesn't quite break down, but he almost does when he's thinking about how this kid's just not going to make it. He just doesn't have what it takes to survive prison. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that's, and that's going back to, you know, why Jack Nicholson characters work the way they do. It's that specific quality that Jack Nicholson can bring to an otherwise very ego driven character. Right. Most of the time, a Jack Nicholson type character is always in it for himself. One hundred percent. But with Jack Nicholson's films during the 70s, whether it's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or whether it's this The Last Detail, there's always these moments where he gets to show how much he cares about the other people, right? Whether it's the chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, whether it's, you know, Meadows in The Last Detail. And it, it, it always allows us to see past his blatant selfishness to that sort of inner core that really does care about others. And I think that's why Jack Nicholson characters work better than others that try to do what he does. He's relatable. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's something you can, I think all these characters are, and that's why this film really works is because you could see a little piece of each one of us in each one of these characters. You could see the vulnerability uh, that each of us possess. You could see uh, the rugged exterior that we have to put on to get through life and stand up for ourselves or or maybe the the side of us that we wish we had. Uh, Jack Nicholson, in a lot of ways, is a lot of our fathers, you know, the, the gruff, um, you know, uh, uh, rough exterior man with the heart of, you know, the cocksucker with the heart of gold, more or less. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like uh, the guy you, you have yelling at you, you know, uh, one minute and then... Uh, giving you a hug the next, or at least having some motivation behind the yelling. You know, it's not just sure. uh, him being a dickhead for the sake of being one. Um, you could see the soft side, whether it's uh, him showing him uh, the the ship signs, uh, you know, doing the what I have he flagged here is uh, Randy Quaid and, and Jack Nicholson. No pun intended. Do the world's first uh, TikTok uh, dance <laughs> in the hotel room, <laughs> wasted, or you know, just kicking back beers or taking him to his uh, to, to a brothel to get laid before he goes into prison. Um, even just the sentiment of him digesting what Randy Quaid did versus a sentence and having the book thrown at him for no reason other than uh, you know personal. Uh, as a personal vendetta, more or less, from yeah. uh, the head of the, the the wife of the head of the military base. So. Yeah, you see a lot of soft side from these guys that instantly forgives them for any of the gruff stuff that they do. And, uh, you know, when they do pick fights or when you do see Badusky being a badass, uh, oftentimes it's motivated, uh, you know, in a, in a right kind of way. You know, he stands up to the racist bartender. Um, that's exactly what I was going to say, because, you know, we that's. That's exactly what I'm talking about, where I talk about Jack Nicholson's characters having these sort of human elements, right? Right. Is even though and it's it's interesting because he can be both at the same time in terms of being irate and compassionate. And we see that in that bartender scene, right, where he just he's like, dude, you're you serve in the military talking to Meadows like you should absolutely be able to buy a beer. And he's like, ah, well, I'm not old enough. And he's like, that's a bunch of crap. Like, I'm going to go in and we're going to go into this bar. and I'm going to get you a fucking beer because like any man that serves that serves should be able to have a beer. Right. 
right? And so right. he goes in, and then obviously the bartender hassles him, and we get the all-time classic line that we're going to listen to right now in this clip. Take your hand off that horse cock you got stashed under the bar. How do you know I don't have something with a little more bark to it? Ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms. Well, I know that you ain't got nothing but wood under there, my man, because I happened to be in here one night when a certain sailor got it laid up the side of his fucking head. What do you think about that, redneck? Possibly loses license for sure if I serve that I'm gonna kick your ass around the block for drill, man. You try it and I'll call the shore patrol. I am the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker! I am the motherfucking shore patrol! Now give this man a beer. You're gonna have a fucking beer! Come on, uh, Ryan, if you could just know how many times I say I am the motherfucking Shore Patrol motherfucker in my head on a given <laughs> week or month, it's significant. That one always stuck with me, even from just that one viewing. I love Fantastic that line so line. much. Yeah. So brilliant. And again, you know, like, so in just in these, you know, minute and a half to two minute scene, right? Like, just these tiny characterizations, right? So from Budusky insisting that they get him a beer, right? And then the bartender is basically like, you know, go screw yourself, got to see some ID. And then Badusky forces the issue. You know, he's getting in his face. Mulhall's just kind of sitting there quietly standing by. Uh, and then Meadows is actively like, hey, you know, let's not, you know, have a thing, da-da-da, we can get out of here. And then, you know, it isn't until... But then when the bartender makes a, uh, you know, racist comment about having to serve him, pointing to him being a black guy, Mohol is not afraid. He speaks up right away, cuts him off and says, hey, you know, shove that up your, take those glasses and shove it up your ass sideways when you get the hell out of here or whatever. And then Budusky's like, no, 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 we're going to fucking deal with this. And Meadows is like, guys, guys, come on. So and just in that minute and a half, again, the characterization and then even from the bartender who we've never even spent a moment with before this scene very quickly from, you know, the way that he goes to grab and, and almost bluffs that it's a gun, but then it isn't. And the racist comment and da, da, da. Like again, just when you can extract that much characterization out of a 90 to 120 second scene, like that's brilliant, you know, just so much charisma out of that guy. He's kind of like a rated R Harrison Ford almost to me. Like, you know, I would be curious, like, I wish there was a, a version of Star Wars that existed where Jack Nicholson played Han Solo. That would be fucking amazing. <laughs> Dude, I would absolutely be there for that. 100%. <laughs> I wonder if he would have. You know what? I feel like he also would have improved the I know line. It wouldn't even change. because He would just inhabit it so well. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, try to tell him you don't serve Wookiees here and watch what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be so, like, slow motion, like, oh, did you hear that, guys? They don't serve Wookiees around here. <laughs> well, I guess we're going to have a little bit of a showdown, aren't we? <laughs> like a <laughs> slow that lightsaber up. up your ass sideways. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and then, you know, from there, we also get the scene. So uh, right before that, too, there's a scene where they go into the cafe and, and you know, Meadows makes mention about how he just wants the cheese to be melted on his burger and then it shows up and it's not. And so Badesky's like, nah, it's a bunch of crap. You know, send it back. And he's like, no, I'll just eat it. And he's like, nah, hey, waiter, melt this damn cheese. And then, you know, that's going to show up later where he sends something back after it's not exactly uh, what he's looking for, you know. So, again, just tiny little moments of characterization. And then, you know, we also get, 
big moments, large moments, long moments of that as well, like the hotel scene. Like that was actually a very long scene for an that hour and 45 minute scene, film. Right. They spent like 12, maybe 15 minutes in this hotel and nothing really happens in terms of plot driven action driving the story forward. It's just more of us getting to know who these guys are. And I I'll just love tell you how what it is. Please. Um, I couldn't find proof of this, but this is our opportunity to see that this, I can't prove it, but I'm pretty sure this film was sponsored by Schlitz. <laughs> Cause was there is Schlitz? A, I thought it was Miller light. I no, could, uh, it is Schlitz. Schlitz. Yes. Uh, uh, which was really big in the seventies. Um, I drank a lot of Schlitz malt liquor when I was a kid, just because it was cheap, <laughs> but the cans of Schlitz beer, uh, they were labeled on both sides perfectly so that whichever camera angle i swear they were turning those cans just because every single camera angle schlitz was like front (laughs) featured logo prominent totally in focus well lit uh that was on the park bench at the end the the entire uh when they were having the picnic in the snow the entire film they were drinking well there's even that line where they're like pounding the pounding them in the garage before they end up going to the hotel and he's like this is the best drink in the world isn't it <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing like an ice cold Schlitz to wash down. <laughs> it's like, it goes right into a little theme song. Which is there. funny, though, because there's also a scene later. It's like right after that. It's right after they beat up the, the Marines in the bathroom or whatever. And then they go get a beer at a bar. And he says... And because I remember I was like, this is the only thing where I have to give Badisky like minus two points is because he says that uh, Heineken is the best beer in the world. And I'm like, boo, Boo. Heineken beer is not a good beer at all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So I'm like, ah, that's literally the only the only checkmark against you. Other than that, badass, you're a okay in my book. Um, So, yeah, like, I don't know how that worked. Maybe they double dipped on some uh, sponsorships. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past them, but who knows? <laughs> so, yeah, so after they do have that um, fight with the Marines in the bathroom, which also comes on the heels of a quick scene where Badisky convinces them to try to swing by Meadows's mom's house. And they get there, and she's not there, and it's kind of decrepit looking. And then immediately, Moho kind of dresses down Badisky afterwards. He's like, man, this is a fucking waste of time, dude, like... You know, this is just a big party to you, but, like, this is an assignment. We got a job to do, this and that, kind of reminding us, like, oh, yeah, they do have an assignment. Like, it's it's not just these guys going around on a fucking bachelor party for a week and shit, you know? Like, uh, they actually are bringing this man to jail. So that was a nice sort of little sobering reminder to just plot that back in our head because it is easy to forget that over the course of this film. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, listen, for the listeners, if you're – if this sounds a little jostling because, well, and then they're here and now they're in a hotel room and now they're in a bar and now they're doing this and that and they're in a brothel and they're at his mom's house. That's what this movie is. It's just it's a them, road trip. Yeah. It's just them going to different places on the way to a final destination. Correct. And so that's, you know, I kind of set that up in the beginning, just in the sense that I did not expect that from this film. I had forgotten that's kind of what this was, but it was very palatable and it was very charming and it was very fun. Um, I, th- I was expecting more of a 70s auteur drama uh, again, totally forgetting how Ashby was coming off of Harold and Maude. It was a fun romp. So um, absolutely you know, Harold and Maude was kind of like that, too. I know you haven't was seen it? it, but but it's just Harold, uh, you know, setting up all these different, very heartfelt means of committing suicide. 
if I recall. Oh. And um, yeah, it's a very dark film with a heart of gold. Okay. And, uh, oh, wow. and how he ends up, um, you know, charming and, and winning over this mod character. So uh, yeah, uh, this was kind of the same thing where you got this backdrop of Randy Newman's character, uh, Randy Quaid's character. Uh, so- <laughs> <laughs> Growing off the <to> jail. <laughs> Shoo, bitty, boop. <laughs> All for $40. <laughs> um, I mean, you got a friend in me does work in this if you wanted to. <laughs> it so- totally does. Yeah. <laughs> um, Stole the money from the polio because you. <laughs> um, so Randy Quaid's character is going to jail for uh, a very long time at a very young age. And and that is, uh, like you said, to your point, bringing this conversation kind of full circle. Uh, that is reminded, uh, you know, we are reminded of that several times throughout. Um, hey, this is a serious thing that's going on. It's like, oh, yeah, that's right. I thought we were just drinking beer and banging whores. Nope. Uh, <laughs> we got we got a mission to do. Yeah, um, but they do make sure to make some time to make some time to uh, also poke some fun at uh, your your sort of uber liberals and, uh, you know, the kind of kooky sorts that, you know, started to pop up during this whole sort of new age mentality, spirituality stuff. So, you know, they the chanting uh, and, and some yeah, of the exactly, stuff. because yeah. they're leaving they the, the yeah, church leaving, of some kind, some alternate religion. Yeah, yeah. So they leave the bar like Badisky's just sort of hustled uh, some some guys on some darts, uh, made them some quick money. And, you know, they're walking down the street and they hear this sort of like, you know, uh, ululating voices, chanting, whatever you want to call it. They sort of follow it. And it ends up being this sort of impromptu religious ceremony that's kind of going on in this random uh, apartment that they find themselves out, which, Ryan, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, in that audience, totally Gilda Radner. Did you catch yep. that? I yeah, did notice she was that. right there. I do love her. She's so charming. Didn't know uh, uh, didn't know that was coming. And all of a sudden, there she was. <laughs> I was like, is that? Holy shit, there she is. Yep. Yeah, because you see her sitting there, and then they gave her like a moment to where she actually gets to say something into the camera or something like that. But um, Honestly, but didn't know Carol Kane was in this film either. Uh, coming yeah, up I didn't either. Scene uh, very ahead. young and very naked Carol Kane. Yeah. <laughs> and I like, again, you know, we're talking about the characterization moments that occur frequently through this film. And I do love each of their responses to, you know, the ceremony, because you've got Mule, which, by the way, when we say Mule, at a certain point, he's Mulhall tells the, that everyone just calls him Mule. And, you know, Bud says people call him badass. And of course, Meadows is just Meadows. So Mule's like, man, this is some bullshit. Let's get the hell out of here. This is stupid. But Isky's like mocking them, but also kind of fascinated by like what's going on. Like, what the hell did we just sort of walk into? Um, like wants you get, I almost get the sense that he kind of wants to hang around, but just so he can make fun of them. And then of course you've got Meadows who is just fascinated by the entire thing and, uh, you know, really drawn to these people and they end up giving him some sort of mantra to chant that he's going to, you know, utilize over the, the rest of the film in different capacities. And, uh, Ryan, one of the, one of the other things that this film does, by the way, real quick. So again, after this, they end up going to like some arcade games and they go ice skating. I thought it was a really nice touch that when Meadows is doing these sort of like childlike activities, he's very sort of happy. And uh, Padisky and, and Mule kind of watch him like, ah, look at the little whippersnapper out there having a good time. <laughs> you like the ice skating <laughs> rink, son? Are you winning, son? Right. Like uh, so. And then, of course, they go to the bar after that. And that's when the girl comes by and says, like, hey, I hear you chanting. Do you guys want to come back to my house? 
Um, so, but before we go into that scene, Ryan, I did want to talk to you about the sound design. So for anybody listening that doesn't know by now, Ryan is a professional sound man. I believe that's the, 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 uh, exact credit he gets on his projects that he worked professional on. Professional sound, sound man. Yes. Professional absolutely. sound man. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a somewhat controversial style of capturing sound that was big in the seventies. And later on, I often call it the Robert Altman approach to sound. Um, but Hal Ashby's sort of, I guess is known for doing it as well. Uh, we, we, we heard it in Fritz the cats too. And it's this idea that, you know, you want to capture sound authentically, right? And an authentic sound can be dirty and muddy and ugly and lo-fi and tinny and all of these sort of things. Right. And there are people that enjoy or enjoy utilizing that style of capturing sound, again, to give it a level of what they believe is authenticity. And then you have the other camp that's, you know, no, you, this is, this is a smoke and mirrors, just like everything else. You know, you capture it clean and then you manipulate it in post. If you need to throw filters on it to make it scratchy, this and that, da, da, da. But, you know, you manipulate all that stuff, you capture it clean. As a quote, professional sound man, Ryan, what camp are you in? Um, you know, or I think do you see the appeal of both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see the appeal of both sides. I mean, obviously, the the more control you have, the more you can evoke emotion or, or you know, uh, by bringing the uh, dialogue up or more in your face or allow a whisper between uh, your talent to be more impactful uh, instead of buried. And, um, you know, I. I thought this was in the muddied camp at first, but then I started to notice that in the diner scene, for example, that's funny you bring this up because this is something that I had given thought to um, and and was thinking about as I was watching or listening to this film. Uh, the diner sure. scene, for example, as they're uh, walking in or walking around or in the bathroom scene as they're walking through the crowd, um, a lot of those sounds uh, in the background are very uniform and don't change as they're running through meaning you know if you're dragging a microphone on a boom pole through a large crowded scene uh your background is going to shift as you're moving through and certain voices are going to fall off and and other voices are going to be picked up as you move along um this didn't really have a lot of that so i i think this was uh, done more in post. I think this was, um, you know, more of a fully well-edited film that just was made to sound like a bustling city or, I mean, they are outdoors or in public for most of it. They're not in these intimate scenes, uh, barring the train, uh, but even the train stuff again, it's all very, if you listen to the background, uh, sound effects, it's all very uniform and, and, you know, might even be some canned stuff, uh, if it wasn't fully or, you know, captured on set. But, um, I think that they controlled the dialogue as much as possible and added all that stuff in later. That's my take on it. Nice. Yeah. Cause there is a lot of the, like, you could tell that they made a point to incorporate that, whether, I mean, I, I, after you saying it, I do agree it's probably done in post, but either way, like they definitely made a concerted effort to get those sort of urban soundscapes going, right? Whether it's right. the trains in the background, the cars in the background, people walking, like, and they, they really kind of, you know, make a point to emphasize it. It's a, it's a large part of the sound design. Well, yeah, because what you're talking about, about the Altman experience is that you would hear stuff the way that you would hear stuff. And so much as as you travel the earth with your feet, dude, you know, he'll record people talking over each other, like right. just two actors talking over each other through the same mic. Like, this is insane. 
Well, even just background sounds and stuff like people will come and go out of the scene. Your background dialogue will fall off. Like you said, like uh, you'll because you're using the same mics and stuff like that, like as the boom pole swings away or, you know, as you pan away from those characters, you stop hearing them. Uh, And this was more consistent, like the background. If you heard if you were in the diner and you're hearing plates and things, you know, and the, the short order cook in the background, like you continue to hear that throughout the scene. Um, You know, if you're hearing traffic. You continue to ha- hear the traffic until the scene's over. You know, it's all very consistent. And so I think a lot of that was done in post. And uh, let's add the fact that Hal Ashby is an editor. Like, that's what he comes from is the post-production world. So that's probably mm, where you felt more, most comfortable um, adding yeah. a lot of that in and having most control over the most control over his film. And, and the story he was trying to tell was in post. No, absolutely. Great point. Great point. So, you know, they do end up going back to this woman's apartment and it's looking like, you know, Meadows is going to get lucky, get laid, whatever you want to call it. Right. And the woman ends up taking him upstairs, you know, for a little personal time and then uh, says that she's going to chant for him uh, so that he can sort of realize uh, getting away from the guys or whatever it is. Right. So. Not exactly what they were sort of uh, hoping would happen. And of course, while we're there, we sort of see the animosity of that group towards uh, them being soldiers, right? Maybe a little bit less so the Meadows character, but certainly uh, Mule and Badass are are not appreciated. Their presence is not appreciated. But Iski's trying to talk to that one girl. She just keeps like rolling her eyes and walking away. It's just not happening. So this was a a very uh, brief reminder of because, you know, we've had we've been in this, you know, fun romp and and, uh, we haven't really had a reminder yet of the times that we're in, right? So this sure. is, the, we're still in the Vietnam War. Nixon is still president. They ask uh, in this party that you're talking about now, in this very scene, they're asked by these um, hippies of sorts or liberal-minded folks, uh, you know, what do you think? Isn't there anything Nixon's done that you don't agree with? Or why did you go? Or you went to Nam? You know, these are all, you know, they ask Mule and, and about his tour yeah. of duty and stuff over there. Uh, and he didn't want to talk about it. Um, this is kind of the period of time that our troops weren't being, if I'm not mistaken, weren't being welcomed home very favorably. This is Lieutenant Dan mm-hmm. times uh, from Forrest Gump, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Or uh, was, who's the guy that we looked at when we were uh, born on the 4th of July? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise's character from Born on the 4th yeah. of July and all, by Oliver Stone. Same type deal where, um, you know, 73, 74, uh, we're right on the cusp of all of that and, and the war ending and, and uh, a lot of these people being... Um, not heralded for what they were doing over there. And uh, again, being the first war that was televised, you know, uh, and and publicized for the atrocities of war. You know, prior to that, we get the Captain America view. You know, it's like go team and kill Hitler and all of that, not thinking about uh, the evils that happen on all sides and and war is hell kind of thing. So uh, this... Just a brief reminder. I mean, it, they didn't really drag you through it or bring you down from it. Yeah. But it was a little uh, let you know that these people weren't, you know, they're wearing their sailor outfits uh, and, and shore patrol outfits in perpetuity throughout the entire film. Hats and all pretty much. So, um, you know, as they're walking around these cities, uh, you know, it's easy to get caught up in the patriotism and nationalism that we can have sometimes today. But uh, at this moment in time, you know, not so much, maybe, you know. 
Yeah. Well, and I do think that the film does take a couple of moments to sort of satirize that whole thing. And specifically, I'm thinking of the several times that they get in fights because every time sure. they get in a fight, it's always with like it's never with like anybody bad. Right. It's like oh, the the Navy guys are fighting the Marine guys because it's, you know, just a pissing match or whatever. And, you know, <laughs> so they end up beating up the Marines and then they scramble out of the bathroom. And then we hear the patriotic like da 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 da. And I immediately think of like those old clips where like the woman's in distress and like the naval soldiers like go in and beat up the bad guy and like carry her out. Right. And I yep. feel like that was sort of Ashby riffing on that. Like, yeah, no, this romanticized view of sailors, like they just, you know, shitting, pissing, getting in fight kind of guys, right? <laughs> Not exactly <laughs> right. the uh, old Captain America heroes that we sometimes uh, can be, though Though not in a disrespectful way, of course, just sort no, of no, showing I mean, but, that they're humans like anyone else with. But rare. You know, yeah, a little rough around the edges from their time and, at sea, the things they've seen. And, and uh, even down to the character details that uh, Badusky is rarely seen not chomping on a cigar. Uh, throughout yeah. this whole film and kind of obnoxiously smoking in the train. Um, I, I'm certain that it was more common back then. I know you could smoke on planes. Yeah, the stuff, other two but... are smoking cigarettes and he's got just like giant cigar. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That was uh, kind of leaning into that stereotype a little bit too. So yeah. uh, a lot of character choices, yeah. uh, whether they were made by Nicholson or, or Ashby, I'm not certain, but. Definitely. And then so, of course, you know, that doesn't go their way. The next day they decide, look, this kid's about to go to jail for eight years. He's never been laid. We got to take care of that. So Badesky uses his wiles to end up finding a cab that takes them to a brothel uh, where, you know, Meadows is going to be able to lose his virginity before he goes into prison, uh, of which he would come out at age 26 if he serves all eight years, which I think we can all agree. Yeah, too long. Got to take care of that before then. So, uh they in, they end up taking him to the brothel and there's a very was young he supposed Carol to be eighteen in this film was that the yeah that yeah he, they yeah they said he was eighteen which is because he's too young to get the beer first and foremost if he's not eighteen he's nineteen it was one okay. or the other but he wasn't wow. twenty yet yeah okay yeah that definitely um, has perspective which, I missed that part yeah yeah so he's a he like I said he's a he's a late teenager for sure for sure so and then of course you know he ends up being attracted to uh, he's in the brothel. They got the girls there. He ends up selecting Carol Kane. She's very sort of small and has a a certain vulnerability that the others sort of lack. They seem a little bit more seasoned. She seems a little bit more younger, like kind of new to this thing. And there's a certain tenderness that he affords her, you know, because again, he's a, just that kind of guy and B, this is his first sexual experience, even though he, you know, fires way too quickly the first time as we all do. Right. It happens, buddy. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, they do, uh, find a few more dollars so that he can have a, a proper experience. And he does. And then of course he's being very tender with her and she's, you know, just in her situation that is not good and she can't reciprocate of course, but you get the sense that she still appreciates the tenderness slightly. So, that whole thing happens, and then we're going to get one last scene where it's basically, I mean, look, dude, you know, time to pay the piper. You know, we're pretty much there. We, we've pretty much reached the prison, and uh, they decide they want to have sort of one last picnic in the park. They end up getting hot dogs and cooking them, but, A, it's, you know, super cold. It's snowing. There's snow everywhere, and, you know, Badisky forgets the hot dog buns, which is a little distressing to Mohal, but, you know, Meadows is going to make do. Just dip it in some mustard. And uh, again, you know, we see the vulnerability that Badisky has towards this guy that he's become very fond of, you know, and he even mentions earlier on, like when he's talking about how much he hates the Marines, about how they're just, you know, these sadistic fuckers, I believe is the exact words that he uses. But the idea is that like 
you know, he is critical of them for not having a certain level of compassion, for not having a certain level of humanity. And it's very interesting to give that quality to uh, this Jack Nicholson character because it's not what you would generally think of, right? But again, this is the depth that, you know, somewhere between Jack Nicholson, Robert Town, and Hal Ashby, you know, some combination of the three of those and whatever percentages all came together to make this character just much more than it could have been and probably even was on paper. I'm sure Nicholson and Nashby had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I mean, I had uh, I had several friends uh, in various stages of my life that were Badusky. I had, because these are the guys that'll get you into some shit and then get you out of it and then ask, but did you die? You know, and then you go along <laughs> with them the next time, right? So, yeah. Because um, they're, because you're living, kid. You know, this right. is really living, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he says at so many points of the film, relax. All we got to do is dot, 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 and then insert random <laughs> hijinks here. And then you get into some random shit. And then they, and then he's like, oh, and then he get he's ultimately the one that ends up getting him out of it. And so, uh, you know, proving his worth to the crew, but he is, uh, again, he's, he's a cocksucker with the heart of gold in this film. And, and I think the hot dogs in the scene you're discussing here, the hot dog buns rather are just, a vehicle to get to the subtext of, you know, it's like when your parents uh, argue over, you know, you're not bringing uh, suntan lotion to the beach or something. It's never about the suntan lotion. It's about some crazy shit that happened prior or some underlying yep. stress that's going on. Um, and I think that this was just a breaking point between Mule because uh, Meadows didn't really seem to care one way or another. Uh, and Mule got over it fairly fast, but he did bring it up. And then Badusky kind of like flew off the handle because you could tell he was just under a lot of pressure and not. Uh, really handling well what was going to happen next, which is turning Meadows over to the military police of sorts to go to prison. Yeah. And and the interesting thing, too, is that a lot of times those types of individuals, that's kind of how it is, right? And I think uh, probably most of us share this quality in some capacity, which specifically is the idea that, like, you're always in a good mindset and you're always approaching – a situation with a strong mentality, but the moment it becomes reality, the moment you're staring it in the face, it's an entirely separate thing, right? So this entire episode or this episode, this entire movie, to your point, Ryan, <laughs> yeah, but Badisky, the entire th- the entire time, relax, we got this, we got this, no problem, you got this, we're gonna do this, blah blah blah, this and that. But the moment it comes time to turn them in, like that's when reality hits them in the face, and that's when. He breaks down and he realizes that he isn't maybe as strong and carefree as he likes to project or wishes that he was. And, you know, these these this thing that is happening to, you know, this friend that he's made in a very short amount of time, like really causes him distress because he cares for him. And, And again, I just think that's the entire key to making this character work. Sure. I agree. And uh, work so, it did. I was a big fan. Absolutely. Now, the the interesting thing as well, too, is immediately after that. So the film is going to is going to is going to let us know that this is the type of character that Jack Nicholson is. But also, he's still badass Badisky and he doesn't take shit. And he's very proud of the fact that he's good at his job. He, he remarks that several times. Like, I mean, he obviously makes his job out to be more than it is. Like, there's no question about that. But that being said, he's still very proud of the fact that he's good at it. And so immediately after Meadows tries to make one last break for it. And, you know, rather than some sort of emotional, sympathetic, like, 
oh yeah, you know, uh, let's let Lassie run off into the sunset. He's like, hey, hey, where are you going, you asshole? And then he pulls out his gun and he loads his clip and he like chases him. And uh, so, you know, even though he's having this big emotional response to uh, his situation, uh, that doesn't change the fact that he still has a job to do, and that's to deliver this man to a prison. And as much as he cares about him, um, he's he's going to do his job and he's going to do it well. Sure. Yeah, it's it's, it's you or me, and it ain't going to be uh, me. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was fun in games, but like, yeah, no time to pay the piper, man. This is this is it. You know, it, it sucks, but it is what it is, you know. And so and, you know, they do end up delivering him right then and there. And it's very unceremonious. It's just a very matter-of-fact thing. You know, they get there, and, and Meadows is, you know, cut to him in handcuffs, and Badisky and Mueller bringing him in, and they, they they do so. And then two guards just come in, grab Meadows, walk him up the stairs, close the gate behind him, never to be seen again. Not yep. by us, anyway. And nope. they just kind of stand around there a little bit. And, yeah, and I do think there's an element of, you know, again, reinforcing that, like, well, Okay, it's it's done. That was kind of anticlimactic. Like, what was the whole point of this thing? And, you know, that's that is the point is that there was no grander point. You know, it was it was an experience. You know, it was an experience in life. It was a thing that happened and it carries whatever emotions it does or doesn't for you. But, uh, you know, there's no greater lesson to be learned. And, and you know, it just. Life is not fair and the people that you love will come and go and all of this, you know, very matter of fact, just kind of like, sorry, buddy, that's the way life is. And 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 again, the way that they just sort of escort him away in that very, you know, there's no swelling strings. There's no emotional look backs. There's no whispering, you know, we'll get you out of here, buddy. Like, nah, dude, like, that's it. Done. He ain't coming. They ain't coming back for him. He's serving his eight years. They're going home. Movie's over. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, it also is very interesting to me that the film is bookended with uh, Mule and Budinsky going into uh, a superior officer's office uh, in the military, filing paperwork. The whole thing is very uh, bureaucratic and it starts and finishes that way with hijinks in the middle. So the second they get away from the military, um, it's kind of like. Uh, Tom Cruise in risky business when his parents go out of town, you know, all of a sudden you know, <laughs> you're free to, to roam and, you know, slide across the floor in your undies and socks, you know, uh, singing uh, old time rock and roll. But um, then, you know, they get back and they're back to duty again. And uh, I, I know how Ashby was quoted at one point as saying that, uh, you know, one of his motivations for this film was that at the end of the day, everybody's hiding behind their badge or their uh, rank. And so in the military, so, uh, you know, whether you're, you know, in the, in Vietnam killing Charlie or you're delivering a prisoner to prison at the end of the day, it's all bureaucracy. It's all red tape. You're just a number in the system and everybody's kind of hiding behind their rank and file. And you're only doing that because the person above you is holding them, uh, to task. And so, you know, in this end scene, you've got a superior officer from the Marines, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't even the Navy that he was being turned over to for some reason. Uh, Um, They were running the operation or something like that, but the paperwork hadn't been filed and he started jumping down Beninsky and Mule's throat. And then they stood up for themselves and said, look, you got to take your duplicates and kind of show them how to do his job and put him in his place. And you see him shrink back. So once that. Well, but the action that does that, though, is because they to your point, they pull rank. So this guy's got a higher rank than them. And so he's punking them. And then the moment they say, you know what? 
we're done with this. Let me see your XO. Like, let me talk to the manager. Right. right. And then all of a sudden yeah. he's like, uh, you know what? Fuck you guys. Get they out go of here. Karen right? on him. Yeah. Yeah. They want to exactly. see a superior officer. And, uh, and he's like, no, no, we don't need to go there. And then, you yeah. know, he backs so to your down. point, it's just, it's just a matter of, you know, a pissing match over rank. It's you a know? lot of bluffing. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, that was kind of Hal Ashby's point. And then to show the humanity when you pull those ranks away and just get to these people as human beings. And I thought he did a tremendous job at doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. And then very simply, you know, they're they're excused and they're walking away. And I think uh, Mule mentions he's going back to, I want to say, Baltimore and Badisky's going back to New York City and they just march away and they turn a corner. That. We don't see them and movie's over. Done and done. Yeah. You know, I think you get a little more drum drum line uh, stuff. In the <laughs> a few more military snares. And, and then yep. again, a very brief end credit too. like, I don't know if just that few people worked on this film or they were like, Hey guys, we, we don't feel like doing credits. We're just going to give you an extra hundred bucks to not like do them. Is that cool? All right, yeah. cool. <laughs> Dude. I mean, speaking of who, who uh, worked on this film, we haven't even mentioned the fact that this is Michael Chapman's first film uh, as a DP. That's fucking crazy. And he also did a cameo as a taxi driver driving them to the brothel. I'll go you one more. No idea who that is. Michael Chapman? Uh, no idea who that is. Uh, I wow. believe that was I mean, the uh, guy in Monty Python, right? No, no. Well, this is uh, <laughs> the the Michael Chapman who uh, was Graham Chapman, by the way. I just just I get need it. to know people know that I know who that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, Michael Chapman was Scorsese's DP for Taxi Driver, oh. Raging Bull, all the way through. Um, he even did uh, The Last Waltz, which wow. I have uh, produced no less than three versions of remaking this in various capacities. That's, that's uh, your, that's your jam. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's, uh, he's a pretty big dude that Michael Chapman okay. is going places. Yeah, he's been around. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this up as we usually do, Ryan, with three adjectives before we get to our official ratings. Why don't you go ahead and give us your three adjectives for the last detail? My first one, I kind of spoiled in the top of the show. Um, I called this film genreless. I think we've gotten to the, to the bottom of why it is kind of like that. Um, and I feel more comfortable at the end of our discussion than the beginning of it. Uh, of what this film was, but, um, yeah, I did have some concerns when I, when I was coming up with the adjectives as far as like the three act structure and you know, what this movie was really supposed to be a comedy or a drama, some combination of the two with a military backdrop and, uh, yeah, very, very odd. And yet, uh, my second adjective is smooth. This film feels like Kenny Loggins <laughs> and Michael McDonald, baby. It is so easy to watch. It's a fun romp. Going on a last detail <laughs> with my friends. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what a fool believes, Jason. Um, <laughs> no, this is a, a smooth, easy, uh, easy listening uh, movie, uh, considering it's serious uh, subject matter. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, kind of pairing with that, I've got a hyphenated one, um, Simple Fun Romp. Uh, it is kind of that yeah. Bing Crosby, Bob Hope, uh, you know, uh, film, the the road movie. and um, But so enjoyable, man. I really enjoyed this. Um, uh, this is the, the, the it, it, as far as Hal Ashby films go, this is the Ashby's Knees. Uh, I really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> <God> damn it. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome, world. Uh, uh, we almost made it through an episode without some cheesy pun. Nah, yeah, fuck right off with that. I'm coming at you. <laughs> uh, 
Uh, I'm going to go back and listen. There's probably been 17 up until now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. So for me, you know what? I was uh, I was uh, just running out of them uh, single, single, single use adjectives. So I decided to just lean heavy into the uh, hyphens this time. So uh, my first one is a, a single hyphenation. A dialogue driven. This is not a movie where it's all about plot and it's all about story. It's, as we've mentioned over the course of this episode, very character driven. And it's really just all about getting to know who they are through the dialogue specifically, as well as to a lesser extent, some of the actions. But even then, they don't really do much aside from, you know, drink and fight and play darts and walk around and go places, which, again, you know, you're describing a sailor here. So... Now, the next one we have is a double hyphenation. That's two richly drawn characters. And again, piggybacking off of what I just said, it's uh, these aren't just one note guys. You know, you really get the whole totality of who these guys are. So interesting that at the expense of a traditional arc for any or all of these three guys where they start one way and end another, I would say that none of them are given an arc, but all of them are given the ability to be fleshed out in very much the same way as, as a typical protagonist, you know, so Meadows gets the attention that a supporting character doesn't get in a lot of other films. Same for Mule. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now the last one I have really leaning hard into this, we've got five hyphens and uh, this is to uh, articulate exactly uh, your issue of it being genreless. I went the other way and described it as a slice of life buddy road comedy. wow that is an adjective for the ages right there i like it (laughs) and that's about the best way that i can think to describe this film Uh, if you want to again someone stops me in the middle of the street hey what's this last detail movie about well my friend it's a slice of life buddy road comedy there you go perfectly encapsulates it so uh ryan you give the grade ratings to my star ratings what's your grade rating for the last detail uh, I'm giving this uh, a B, but it's okay. I, I'm going to predicate or I'm going to add to that, though, that this is one of the best B movies, not a B movie, but like <laughs> the best movie. grade B film that uh, that I've uh, I've come across. It, it was a I would watch this again in a heartbeat. I'm not knocking it. There's just not a lot to it. There's not really sure. much to really pick apart. Um, I thought we were going to have a hard time discussing it. And but then I remembered it's you and I and we could talk for <laughs> Six hours about a rock on the ground. So whatever. Yeah, I don't have much to say about this one. Uh, It's going to be a short episode. He said for the 26th time while still thinking it was going to be the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ends up being our our Lord of the Rings episode. It's three hours later. (laughs) We're still going on about Vodusky. Yeah. uh, I give it a B. How about you, Jason? Nice. Yeah. So for me, uh, I'm going to have a solid four and a half out of five stars. Oh, I good. Really, right really on. enjoyed this one, man. Like there was there was never a moment where I was not invested in what's going on. And like I sure, said, same. I think it's just it's it's so much. All of them did a wonderful job, but really just Jack Nicholson specifically, man. This is just the golden age of Jack Nicholson. We're just watching him do his thing and characterize these people and the level of artistry and energy and everything that he just brings. It's a it's a, you know. To use a tired line, it's a tour de force performance, but it 100% deserves that description. And uh, I I love it. Again, to your point, I would watch it again in a heartbeat, you know, tonight. So uh, four and a half out of five stars for The Last Detail. Nice. 
Now to remind everybody, uh, we do have a number of ways that you can engage with us. We love it when you hit us up. We don't get as much as we'd like, so show us some love, right? Tickle our balls a little bit in the form of sending us tweets and emails and stuff. You don't even have to like get up in there. You can just, you know, send us digital, uh, digital correspondence and that'll suffice. Also doesn't get us in trouble, let's be honest. And you can do that a few different ways. You can do that on the Twitter at Esoterica Cinema. You can do that at esotericacinema at gmail.com for all muffin and crepe related inquiries. Uh, by the way, if, if you're if you're having a difficulty choosing between savory and sweet, uh, just combine them both, Nutella and ham. I haven't had it yet, but I'm sure it's fantastic. Crepe, of course, not muffin. Now, the other <laughs> thing that you can do is you can hit us up individually, and I am Jason Aberrant, 1B2Rs, on both Twitter as well as Instagram. Ryan is at the Ryan Siebold on the Twitter and Ryan underscore Siebold on the Instagram. And we, of course, have the Esoterica Cinema Instagram page that is lovely and curated with quotes. And uh, you can hit us up there as well. All of this to say, again, we would love for you to reach out. Let us know how we're doing. Let us know some movies you want us to uh, throw on season three's list. And uh, let us know what you thought about a particular film as well. We would love to see what you have to think about it, whether you agree or disagree with us. And who knows? Maybe one day, uh, if it works out, we'll even get you on the show for a quick little uh, review or something like that. Totally wouldn't be opposed to that. So anyways, guys, with that out of the way, let's go ahead and pull next week's film. All right. So as a reminder, we uh, have a sponsorship through Random.org, the world's best true random number generator. That is, of course, bullshit, but I like to plug them because I feel like uh, they don't have anybody who knows about them. We use it. It's great. We've got one through 200. And when we go over here... Now, by the way, uh, for anybody that doesn't have their list, uh, you can go to the esotericacinema.com, the webpage, and download the Season 2 Master List that we choose all of these from so you can play along. And when I come over here... Okay, so we've got our list up. We're going to go ahead, generate a number, 1 through 200, and we are coming up with 177. So if you have that list, go ahead and pull it out. Go down to 177, which, wow, we have actually done 176, Ryan. 176 was The Void. This is a completely different film. Uh, (laughs) uh, This is a French film called The Wages of Fear. Now, if this sounds at all familiar to you, it's most likely because uh, I believe it's part of the Criterion Collection. So if you're part of the Criterion, but you may very well know it because this is the film that William Friedkin and Roy Scheider remade in the late 70s as Sorcerer. So, Sorcerer is a remake of this film, The Wages oh, of Fear. Oh, hell yeah. I've been wanting yeah. to see this. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Ryan, do you have a description for us? Holy shit, this is sitting at 100% Rotten Tomato Meter. 8.1 in IMDb. In the South American jungle, supplies of nitroglycerin are needed at a remote oil field. The oil company pays four men to deliver the supplies in two trucks. A tense rivalry develops between the two sets of drivers on the rough remote roads where the slightest jolt can result in death. From 1955, uh, this is Henri-Georges Clouseau. If I, am I saying that right? Yep. Close enough. Done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, this got a uh, Golden Bear, won the Palme d'Or, BAFTA Award for Best Film, Crushed. 
Dude, I'm so excited. I've, this has been on my list forever. I've never seen it, and I can't Same. wait to. So, yeah, make sure to go ahead and check out The Wages of Fear for next week's episode, and we will see you then on Esoterica Cinema. Good evening, fellas. What could I get for you? We'll take a round of ice-cold beers and a glass for me and my shipmates here. Okay, well, I'm going to need to see some ID for all of you. IDs. Well, that's just swell. How come you want IDs? Because I think your friends over there ain't old enough. Listen, pal. Listen yourself, pal. Either you present some IDs or I'm kicking you all out of here. Easy, sunshine. We're leaving. You can take your hands off of that horse cock you got stashed under the bar back there. How do you know I don't got something back here with a little more bark to it? Well, ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms. Not firearms. I'm talking about horsecock hot dogs. Juicy German sausage, packed with flavor, and now made with 100% meat. Well, I can smell the real meat flavor. That's a fact, Jack. Horsecock uses every scrap of real meat, so it's organic and good for the environment. Our horsecock hot dogs are plump and juicy enough to fill every bar. Well, there's just one problem. I forgot the buns. No buns. Are you sure? Am I sure? I'm the motherfucking shore patrol, motherfucker. Well, I guess you've forgotten the last detail. Horsecock hot dogs. You'll love the real meat taste. <laughs>